Well, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, I encourage you to bring your Bibles on Sunday morning. Uh, we are in the Gospel of John today. We're going to be in John 14. John, of course, is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, if you're a guest or visitor today, uh, this is actually a really good Sunday. Uh, this might be a perfect Sunday for you to be here at Faith uh, because we're starting a brand new sermon series. Uh, it's called Good Question. And Good Question uh, started uh, several months ago when we began uh, the new year, 2021. And uh, we challenged uh, one another uh, to make this 2021 the year of reading through Scripture. Um, and more than 100 of you uh, have stepped up to the challenge and said, yep, I'm going to read through the Bible, cover to cover, Genesis through Revelation. And so you've been reading the Bible. Some of you, for the very first time in your lives, you're reading through the entire Bible. Uh, and it's bringing to the surface some questions. Uh, some of you, I've gone to your home. Some of you have sent me emails. Some of you have called me and said, hey, Brian, I've got a question. I didn't know this was in the Bible. And so we've been going through this journey of reading cover to cover the entire Bible. And I'm just so grateful uh, that you guys have stepped up and said, yep, I want to be about reading through God's word this year. And so we decided, or I decided, that you all would create the sermon series this summer. That rather than me coming up with the topics and the themes, I just kind of threw out there and said, hey, what questions do you have about the Bible, about God, about Jesus, uh, about Christian theology? What would be really helpful for you? And so all summer long, uh, you all, uh, are, you're, you've written the sermons, uh, or at least you've created the topics for the sermons. And uh, you have sent me some really good questions, uh, some really challenging questions, some things that I haven't necessarily thought about before or things that I've thought about. And I thought, ooh, I don't really know the answer to that. And so you have forced me to do some uh, research myself. So today we're starting that brand new ser sermon series called Good Question. And we're going to start with a good question uh, that I know many people ask, and one of you ex asked explicitly. And the question is simply this, why does the Trinity matter? Why does it even matter that we worship a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? What's the big deal? Why does the triune God matter? Why does the Trinity matter? So let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day you've given to us. We thank you, God, for an opportunity to open your word, to study, to consider, to reflect, to invite your Holy Spirit, God, to renew us and transform us into your image. God, thank you that you have invited us into asking questions about who you are and whose we are in you. And so, God, now may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Hey, a little warning on the front end this morning. Uh, some of your questions um, are less sermon-based and more what I would call Bible study-based. 
okay? And so this morning, it's going to be probably less of a sermon and more of a Bible study. So uh, there's your warning on the front end, uh, because we're going to get in the scripture here, and it may feel like we're a little bit in the weeds. You might even feel like you're listening to a lecture, uh, and I'm just telling you on the front end, it is a little bit like uh, a lecture this morning. So just a few days before Jesus Christ was arrested, a few days before he was put on trial and convicted of claiming to be the Son of God of blasphemy, a few days before he was tortured and hung on a cross to die, Jesus was sharing a meal with his friends. He looked at his disciples and said, guys, it's been a great three and a half years, but I'm leaving. I'm going away. And the disciples didn't understand. They were confused. And they began to ask questions. Jesus, why do you have to go away? What does this mean for us? What are we going to do? Now that you're leaving, how are we going to live our lives? Because if they're going to kill you and take you away and arrest you, what are they going to do to us? How do we continue to move forward? And they were afraid. The disciples were terrified. So in that moment, Jesus explains to them that he wasn't going to leave them alone. He was going to give them the path forward and help them to understand the triune nature of God, the Trinity, and how he, as part of that Trinity, was going to help lead them and guide them into the future. And so in John 14, Jesus speaks these words to his disciples. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Oh, you know what? And, and if you've got your Bibles, one more thing. Um, in this text today, what I want you to do is every time you see a person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, I want you to underline it, okay? All right, back to our text. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that where you also may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen, have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. 
And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So in these 18 verses, we hear God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit over and over. And by my count, I recorded or underlined 15 times where Jesus talks about God the Father 31 times where Jesus talks about God the Son referring to himself, and five times where Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit, the advocate. Maybe your translation says uh, the, the helper. I mean, there's a lot going on in this passage. It's just this weaving and bobbing of the Holy Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of them, to be clear, are distinct persons, distinct roles. All of them are divine. All of them are connected. They're interconnected. And so we ask ourselves, one God, three persons, how does that work? If it were a math problem, it might be something like one plus one plus one equals one. That's bad math, right? It's bad math, but it's good theology. That's really who the Trinity is. One plus one plus one equals one. And you might be thinking to yourself this morning, I don't get it. I don't understand. How can that math problem be good theology? Well, you're in good company because guess what? The disciples didn't get it either. We just read that. The disciples were so confused. We call him Doubting Thomas. I, I call him Honest Thomas. And Ominous Thomas says, Lord, how can we know the way? What in the world is going on? And Philip says, show us the Father. Philip doesn't understand either. The disciples did not understand this whole idea of a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus just laid it all out there for them. And they're like, yeah, we still don't get it. And for hundreds of years, really smart people have wrestled with this idea of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune nature of God. Really smart people, and they've struggled and wrestled and wrestled with it. In the 4th century, there was a guy by the name of Augustine. He was a church leader. Uh, he lived in uh, what we call Egypt today, of course. He's known as Ag Augustine of Hippo, and he was a bishop. He was a very smart guy. He studied God's Word a lot. And one day, Augustine was walking along the beach there in Egypt. Not a bad place to be, right? And he's walking along, feet in the sand, thinking to himself, okay, I'm a bishop, I'm a church leader, I've got to explain to the people in the pews, the people in the church, who is God? How do I explain the Trinity uh, to the people in my church? 
And you thought, well, you know, should I use that illustration of an egg, right? You've got the shell, you've got the yolk, you've got the white part. No, that's problematic. That'll lead to false teachings. Let's get rid of that one. How about water? You've got solid, gas, liquid, right? We've probably heard that illustration before. That's also problematic, and that also leads to heresy or false teaching in the life of the church. And I, I, I don't know if Augustine thought this or not, but I wonder if he thought, well, what about the sun? You know, because you've got the sun where it's, it's like the fire, the heat, and the light. Oh, there's problems with the theology in that as well, too. And then many years later, of course, we know St. Patrick, you know, we talk about this whole idea of the, the three-leaf clover. Maybe that's a great metaphor or illustration. Three petals all on this one weed or flower or whatever uh, 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 that is. That's also problematic. So you can examine metaphor after metaphor after metaphor as it relates to the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and how do they all work as one? Make no mistake about it. We worship one God. One God. One God in three persons. And this was the dilemma. This was the struggle for Augustine. And as he walked along the beach, uh, he saw this little boy playing in the sand. And as he got closer to the little boy playing in the sand, he realized this boy wasn't playing in the sand. He was digging a hole in the sand. And it was a pretty good size hole that this boy had dug in the sand. And after a while, he had a shell or some kind of container or some kind of vessel. He would go into the ocean and pick it up and he would carry uh, some water back over into that hole in the sand and he would dump it out. And then he would go back over to the ocean, he would scoop up some more water, and then we would walk over to that uh, hole in the sand, and he would dump it out. And Augustine watched this over and over and over, so he went over to the little boy and said, young man, what in the world are you doing? And the boy said, I'm going to take the ocean and fill this little hole. And Augustine smiled, and he thought to himself, that's what I've been trying to do as it relates to the Trinity. I'm trying to take the essence of God who is vast and infinite and trying to put him in a little hole, my brain. And I like that story because I think it really helps us to understand the Trinity, the vastness of who God is. And how truly it is impossible for us to fully grasp and understand the very nature of God. We can't do it. And why in the world do we think we can do it? It's like taking the ocean and all the water and putting it in a hole in the sand. More recently, uh, a pastor, a guy by the name of R.T. Kendall, uh, says it this way, quote, The Trinity is the most difficult subject in Christian theology. And by the end of the day, we may feel that we are still out at sea. So if you leave worship this morning feeling like you're still out at sea, you might be. It, it, it's hard. It's really, really difficult. 
So I want to give you a couple of thoughts this morning. I've just got two points uh, to my sermon this morning. Two reasons uh, why the Trinity matters. Two reasons why it's so important that we acknowledge and embrace this theological idea of God as it's the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And num- the first one is this. The triune nature of God matters. Because that's who God says he is. You may not understand it, but God says, this is who I am. I am one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what is recorded in Scripture. I think that's important for us to just kind of start right there. Whether we understand it or not, whether we get it or not, this is who God says he is that he is a triune God. You know, I just read a little bit here out of uh, John chapter 14 this morning where Jesus is talking to his disciples. If you were to read John 14, 15, and 16, over and over and over, Jesus is talking about this relationship between himself, his heavenly Father, and the Holy Spirit, and how they work together. Jesus acknowledged that he was part of the triune God. And so we look at other texts uh, in the New Testament uh, where it looks at uh, this idea of the Trinity or the triune nature of God. Now, Now, some of you might say, well, wait a second. The word Trinity never shows up in Scripture. That's true. If you go to your Bible and look uh, to find the word Trinity, you will never see that word. That word was actually not uh, coined until about 210 by by a guy by the name of Tertullian. He was a, a church father. And he was describing this relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But even though the word Trinity doesn't show up in Scripture, it is explained over and over and over. Let me give you a few examples uh, where this shows up in the New Testament. Remember that day that Jesus was baptized? It's recorded in Matthew three sixteen. On that day, Jesus was present with John the Baptist, and they're getting ready to, to baptize him. It says, in that moment, as Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened up, and God the Father spoke and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was present, God speaks, and then it says, And then the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. Fast forward to Matthew 28 as Jesus is getting ready to leave the earth. He looks at his disciples. He looks at those, the church, who are going to carry on the mission uh, to be Jesus followers. He says, now here's what I want you to do. Go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These words came right from Jesus' mouth. He acknowledges that he is part of this Trinitarian nature of God. He didn't say just baptize in the name of Jesus or baptize in the name of God or baptize in the name of the Holy Spirit, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You might be thinking, well, what about the Old Testament? Does the Trinity show up in the Old Testament? Yes. Absolutely. I'm glad you asked. Let's go to the Old Testament. Let's go right to the book of Genesis, to the creation story, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You hear it? In the beginning, God the Father, before there was any creation, God the Father was there. And the Spirit of God was hovering. So we got two parts of the Trinity at the very beginning. Now, this next part is a little bit uh, nerdy. Do we have any Bible nerds here this morning or just me? A couple Bible nerds? All right. Well, I, well I'm, can I, I'm just going to nerd out a little bit on the Bible here this morning. So, so bear with me. In the beginning, the Hebrew language is Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God. And you've probably heard this word Elohim before. Elohim is the name, that, of course, that we know of as God. In the Hebrew language, the name for God, a God, is El. And if you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll see this over and over and over, this word El. And El is just the name of a God. Not a, not a specific God, just any God, El. Now, a God in the masculine in the Hebrew language is Allah. So masculine, singular God, Allah. Sound familiar? Yeah. That, where do you think Muslims get the name Allah? From this original language, masculine, singular. So who's this Elohim? Elohim, in the Hebrew language, is masculine plural. Anytime you see the, this ending on a, on a Hebrew word of im, him, it's a plural word. So the word Elohim, masculine plural. The very first words of the Old Testament are declaring the Trinity, masculine, plural. Do you hear that? And I know we miss this oftentimes in English, but this is really significant. The Trinity, the plural nature of God, the triune nature of God is expressed very explicitly in the very first words of the Bible. Sometimes people will ask, why do we use the male pronouns referring to God? He, him, his. Because the Bible does. There's no gender neutral in, Hebrew, in the Hebrew language. We don't refer to God as an it. Scripture tells us that God is always referred to in a, a masculine pronoun. Now, to be clear, God is not a man. God is not a person. God is a spirit. But what Scripture tells us very clearly over and over and over is that Elohim Every time that word comes up in the Old Testament, it is a reference to masculine 
plural, the Trinity of God. This is why our scripture uses God with masculine terms. Now, this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, but this is why it matters. In 1989, some theologians came up with a new translation of the Bible. And they said, hey, we're going to make this gender neutral. So they did. And would you believe today that most of the churches around the world that are struggling with pronouns and gender neutral issues embraced that Bible? And I'll just say, if you've got an NRSV Bible in your hands this morning, get rid of it. Just saying. It starts with something that seems so benign. Oh, we're just going to make... We don't want to offend people, right? Because we don't want to call God, uh, you know, use pronouns like he, him, and his. We don't want to offend people. So what we're going to do is we're going to make... Every time we refer to God, we're just going to make them gender-neutral pronouns. Okay. And after a few decades, people in the pews are confused, right? God's not confused about pronouns. We are. So we get back to the text. Elohim, masculine, plural, the Trinity's there. Then we want to, I want to skip ahead a little bit to Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals and all the creatures who move along the ground. Let us make mankind in our image. Who refers to themselves in the plural? Hey, me, myself, and I are going to the park today. I mean, that's just kind of weird, right? Unless you're the Trinity. Unless you're God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Genesis 3, 8, a little further along. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Remember this part of the story, Adam and Eve sin? They're like, uh-oh, we shouldn't have done that. And after they did that, it says in 3.8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden on the cool of the day. Remember, God the Father is not a person like you and me. So who in the world was walking in the garden on that day? Jesus. That's what Jesus is, right? He is the manifestation of God in a human body like you and me. Do you know Jesus was in the Garden of Eden? That's pretty cool. Jesus was there. The, the, the theological term for this actually is called a Christophany. And a Christophany is something that happens where God shows up in a human being, in, in a body, because God doesn't just, God shows up like in a burning bush or, you know, something big, big and spiritual, supernatural. Sometimes God will send angels to deliver messages. But when God shows up in a body of a man and, and does something, has a conversation with someone, we can only conclude that that is Jesus Christ. And this happens several times in the Old Testament. You might remember the story where Jacob was wrestling with a man. 
Who was that man? Scripture is very clear. It was not an angel. It was not just some random person. It was a man. Jacob wrestled with Jesus. There's another story in the Old Testament where Abraham has a conversation with a man. Who was that man? The Old Testament just tells us they didn't have the name of Jesus back then yet. He was just a man. It says it was the Lord, Elohim. So if Abraham's walking along and all of a sudden he's having this conversation like you and I are having a conversation right now, it can't be God the Father because God the Father is a spirit. It can't be God the Holy Spirit because that's a spirit. It has to be Jesus. It's called a Christophany. This miracle where Jesus just shows up. See, you probably thought that Jesus just showed up in Bethlehem a couple thousand years ago. Oh, no. Jesus was present in the Old Testament, and there are several examples of this. God showing up in the personhood of a human being. I think that's pretty amazing. So I want to kind of pull this together. John the disciple, he understood that Jesus was there before the world was created. And so John the disciple begins his gospel writing. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God and the Word was with God. And so what John is doing is he's drawing this parallel between Genesis 1-1 and John 1. He pulls them together and what John is proclaiming to us, make no mistake about it, Jesus was there. Before anything existed in all of creation, Jesus was there. And so this morning, as we look at the Trinity, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's all these connections, the Trinity moving among us. And you still might be thinking to yourself, one plus one plus one equals one. Still don't get it. But I also want to remind you that uh, most of you do not understand the intricacies of auto mechanics. But you still trusted your car to get to worship this morning. Most of you do not understand all the intricacies of that little computer you've got in your pocket this morning. You act as if your life depends on your phone, right? You don't get how it works, but you still trust in it. Most of you don't understand why the Cubs are on a hot streak right now. But you trust that September, October, they'll fall apart. And all the Cardinals fans said, amen, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, there are all sorts of things in our lives that we do not understand, but we still trust, we still believe. And this is the instance, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All right, that's my first point. My second point this morning 
and why the triune God matters is even though it's difficult to understand, the triune nature of God is absolutely foundational to our Christian beliefs. Foundational, fundamental. Now, the best illustration I could think of this morning in light of uh, it being a graduation weekend where we are celebrating our graduates is pretty soon, Mary and Emma, you guys are going off to school. And you're going to hear this term that comes up over and over and over. General education. Gen eds, sometimes known as. And these are all these courses that you get to take when you go off to college. And as you take these college courses, these gen eds, in the moment, they're going to seem like, that's a waste of time. That's pretty silly. That doesn't make any sense. But Emma, you're going to need to take some gen eds. You're, you're ready to make pastries and cookies and all things good, right? Me too. By the way, we've got uh, uh, cupcakes this morning for uh, after, worship this, uh, after worship in honor of our graduates, high school and college, uh, as well as uh, in, in honor of uh, the men and women who've uh, served in the Armed Forces Memorial Day weekend. It has nothing to do with the sermon. Just getting hungry over here. But Emma, before you learn about all those things and making those things, you're going to probably have to take uh, some coursework. You're going to need to take a little bit of math because there is a difference between a tablespoon and a teaspoon. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You might have to study the, a little bit of chemistry or, or biology, some science courses, because you, you need to understand about the composition of butter, right? I just know butter tastes good, but it's important for you to understand the composition of butter and how it works. You might have to take some physics classes so you can understand heat and how that works and understanding things like yeast, right? I mean, there's a lot of science when it comes right down to it, when it comes to, to cooking and baking and all that. Those are some of your gen eds, some of those important things that you're going to have to take. Uh, even before you get into the fun stuff. And Mary, I was thinking about you in terms of your business studies. You get to take math. You like math? It's all right. Okay. Well, you're going to be taking a lot of math. But you're not only going to be taking math, uh, you'll be taking some other gen eds that uh, fall under other categories. You might take a ceramics class and you might be thinking to yourself, what does that have to do with business, right? You might have to take a sociology class. What does that have to do with business? You might have to take a statistics class. Long before you even get into many of your business classes, you're going to have to take a whole slew of other coursework that may seem like they have nothing to do in the whole world with business education. All those who are either in college right now or college graduates, am I right? Are gen eds the most frustrating courses you've ever taken? Yes. Do they seem completely worthless? Yes. But the general eds, the gen ed courses, they help you so that you can build a firm foundation with all of your studies. As I think about ceramics or watercolor or painting or drawing, 
You, in, in the moment, might not necessarily see how that relates to business. But what the fine arts help you to do is to develop those muscles, those thoughts in your brain of being creative. So that as you're being, uh, studying and becoming a business major, you're using some of that creativity. And Emma, as you're doing creative stuff, you're going to have to take some math classes because you're going to need to know how to balance a checkbook. You're going to need to know how to run a business, be able to do all those things with finance. In the moment, gen ed classes seem completely worthless. But what they do is they build foundation. And it may not be until years later, many years later, that you truly appreciate, oh, I am so glad I took that art history class. I mean, have you ever uh, been to a church where the pastor has never taken a public speaking course? How painful is that? You're probably thinking, I'm doing it right now. Public speaking is not a required course in seminary, folks. We just study theology. But it's important that as preachers, we learn a little bit about things that are part of, that are going to help us in our foundation to help communicate. What if a computer science major had no people skills? What if they never had to, they just all day long, all they did was study computers? Never had to take a sociology class, never had to take a psychology class, never had to take a class where they had to actually relate with people. You know those people, don't you? Those computer science people. This is why the gen eds are so important. They establish a foundation and they work their way into your major. They will benefit you. And I know in the moment, it doesn't seem like they will. But all these things work together. And I think this is, as I was thinking about what it means uh, to, to, to worship the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it's kind of like a gen ed class. In the moment, we don't always see the relevance of it. We don't always see the practicality of it. But what the, the, the triune nature of God, it builds this foundation for us as Christ followers so that we can navigate life. Let me give you a couple examples here. First example, about five, 600 years after Jesus lived, a guy came along by the name of Muhammad. And Muhammad said, Jesus is a pretty good guy. Jesus had some really good things to say. But Jesus was not God. He was just a man. Muhammad denied the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so, of course, today, how do Muslims become in relationship with God according to their teachings? Through works. That's what happens when you deny the Trinity. You get rid of the works. Another example, about 200 years ago, a guy by the name of Joseph Smith came on the scene he was waving a Bible, young guy. He said, Jesus Christ was a really amazing guy. He just wasn't God. Joseph Smith 
denied the reality of the triune God, the reality that Jesus is God. And so even today, of course, Mormons, they will call themselves Christians, but they've denied the Trinity. Guess what? No Trinity, no Christian. Another example, 150 years ago, another guy by the name of Charles Russell, he came on the scene. He was waving a Bible. He said, guess what? Jesus was a great guy, but he wasn't God. Charles Russell denied the Trinitarian nature of God. Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll show up at your door with a Bible, and they will try to convince you that they are followers of Jesus. They're not. In fact, if you go to the Jehovah's Witness website, it's, it calls, they call themselves a Christian denomination without the Trinity. Folks, that's impossible. You cannot be a Christian without the Trinity. The Trinity is essential to who we are. Why? How do I draw that conclusion? Because all those denominations or uh, uh, religions, uh, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, how do you get in right relationship with God? Through your works, by what you do. Does that sound like Christianity? No. How do we as Jesus Christ followers, what is the fundamental, most important thing that we teach and we embrace in our Christian faith? That we are saved by grace alone. It's not by what we do, but it's what God has done for us. Amen? This is why it matters that we understand the triune nature of God. If we take out the triune nature of God, there is no God dying on the cross, sacrificing for us. It's so important that we embrace this theological idea, even though we don't get it, even though it's difficult to embrace, even though it's a mystery, even though we struggle with it. It's like a gen ed class, right? It's so essential. It's foundational to who we are is Christ followers. Now, if none of this has resonated with you this morning. Let me give you one, one last illustration here. It's like going fishing. I know some of you like to fish, right? God the Father sent His Son on a fishing trip. God the Son, Jesus, baited you, hooked you, and God the Holy Spirit cleaned you up. You hear how this works? You just want to go fishing now though, right? Three separate roles doing one work, interconnected. And it's foundational to who we are as Jesus followers. I guess the point is this, this idea of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, it's not an abstraction. This is real. God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to rescue, to save you and me. And He gives us the Holy Spirit to clean us up, 
to make us more righteous, to make us more holy. To, the, the Bible says to help us. Anybody need help in your life? I need the Holy Spirit in my life. I mean, this is practical stuff in how our relationship with God. I want to come back to Augustine for just one final moment here. Remember Augustine, the guy on the beach? Remember that guy? This is what he wrote or what he concluded about the Trinity. He said, to try and understand the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. But he says, if you deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. That's the dilemma of what it means to be a Jesus follower and worship the God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I think this is one of the reasons why we like to sing the doxology. Because we don't get it. We just want to sing about it. And we embrace it. We trust that this is who God is. And so I'm going to invite Giselle to come on back up. So we sing the chorus of the doxology one more time. Why don't you go ahead and stand? as we just sing this, this great hymn of the church that's been around for generations. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Father, we do thank you that you are a triune God, that God, you are a mystery to us, and we don't understand fully who you are, Lord, but you do, and so God, on this day, we trust in you, and we believe, Lord, that this is essential to our Christian faith, that we don't swerve one way to the ditch or into another ditch. God, I want to pray for our church for our community, for our world. The Lord, you would help us to be people of your word. People of uh, question, people of community, people of love, and people of care. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.